0: Welcome to Medicine for Good Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabbiola, Clinical Professor of Medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Podcasts on Obesity, a Time Bomb. I cannot think of a topic that needs the most compassion and empathy than obesity. People who are obese are blamed for what they suffer. They are stigmatized as being not in control with their eating. How can they reach such weight? Don't they respect themselves? No one blames anyone diagnosed with cancer or hypertension or COPD, even if they smoked all their lives. No one tells them that it is their fault. But in obese people, it's different. People make them feel that they are to be blamed, that they make choices of unhealthy lifestyle. We ask ourselves then, have we asked ourselves, how hard is it to move around when you carry all this weight? How could I even tie my shoes or even put on my sandals? How is it when people look at you in an airplane when seats are too small, in amusement parks or rides where the bars cannot be engaged in front of you? The inability to play ball with your kids because you can't just move fast enough. How does it feel to be trapped in our own bodies? To feel hopeless. How it feels to be hungry all the time. How a parent suffers when their son or daughter are bullied in school or not included in school activities. How dreams are shut down for being overweight, like dancers, actresses, models. The whispers you hear when people talk about your weight or even look at you. Or they may look at you and not hear you, not even appreciate the depth and the substance that you elicit in the conversation because you are simply overweight. The inability to be able to run in the airport when you're running late for your ride. So the list really goes on and on and on. So I really would like to start this podcast to ask listeners and everyone to heighten our level of understanding and increase our compassion to help understand why obesity is on the rise. Let us help our neighbors cope, our patients to be on track, or be with them when they feel that they are a failure. Or when our children give up because they just can't simply do this anymore. As what other people say, yes, obesity is a time bomb. Yes, it is a time bomb which can explode any time to cause acute and chronic diseases. It is a global epidemic and an even pandemic, relentless, and it involves every developed and developing country. It is a major, major public health burden. It is a metabolic pathology, a physiologic tissue inside a pathological state. It is a chronic disease that, although difficult, it is preventable and treatable. So now I would like to welcome my co-host, Nicole Samignani, for this podcast, who is in her own way, is great in infusing energy into this podcast. It's just the right amount of energy to keep you engaged.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to just open the perspective and the conversation around obesity and kind of have everyone a little bit more engaged in how they can help themselves and how they can help the people around them as well.
0: As you know, Nicole has been in many of these podcasts and it really just helped decrease the monotony of a conversation. Nicole is a master's degree student at UCSF doing global health. So I would welcome your perspective on this podcast, Nicole, because it is really a global pandemic.
1: Yeah, and just increase awareness, right?
0: Yeah, And I guess yeah. the
1: best way to start is let's just break down in the most basic terms, like what is obesity?
0: So obesity is defined based on body mass index. As you know, we have certain normal and above normal and obesity range of BMI. So, a normal BMI is supposed to be between 18.5 to 24.9. So, that's normal. And overweight is considered to be 25 and 29.9. And obesity is more than 30. And above 40 is morbid obesity. So, when people talk about this, things place in perspective. The reason being is certain BMI, you are at risk for something developing. Like, for example, In different cultures, that BMI may be different. Like in Asian cultures, instead of waiting to be a BMI of 25 or above to screen for diabetes, we screen Asians at BMI age 23. And so it is the associated or linkage of a certain BMI to a certain risk factor. And that's why those definitions are made. And as far as we're concerned, BMI are easy to calculate. But in order to put some perspective on the real risk of obesity, people even factor in like uh, waist circumference and to even be more attuned to the possibility of effects of this adiposity, people actually could order CT scan or DEXA scan to Mm -hmm. actually calculate what is obesity and mainly obesity in the visceral organs or in the abdomen.
1: Okay. Okay. I actually didn't know that they calculated the waist circumference in BMI calculations. That's interesting and also makes sense, right? Because everyone has such a different body type.
0: Right. No, actually the BMI is only weight and height, but people go beyond that and actually measure waist and hip ratio. They think that that's a lot more akin to the possible consequences of people's obesity.
1: Right. Right. Okay. Great. And then could you share some current statistics of obesity just to kind of highlight this global epidemic that obesity is?
0: Yeah, it is actually sad because worldwide, obesity really tripled since 1975. So it's about 2 billion adults are obese by 2013. And I bet that figure is even higher now. But as you know, reporting of statistics are a few years behind So this is about a third of the world's population. Just imagine that a third of the world population is obese. And more sinister than that, obesity is increasing in our young population. So in developed countries, 23% were overweight and obese in boys and girls. And in developing countries, where before malnutrition was reported in developing countries, now obesity is being reported in developing countries, about 13% in those countries. So it's really sad and it really behooves us to really find ways to slow this down, prevent it or reverse it. It's increasing, as I mentioned, in both developed and developing countries. In the United States, it's really even sad because we had the pack in the developed nations in terms of obesity. Our obesity rate in the U.S. is about 33 percent. That's 78 million people. And the mortality, like it kills half a million each year. Mm. So it's really sad. And for example, in the developing countries worldwide, there are three to four million people who die from complications from obesity. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think the thing that gets me the most is, you know, how it increases in younger generations, right, or younger individuals. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later about what can happen from having obesity. But I know that I was reading an article that a lot of younger individuals are developing diabetes at a young age due to this epidemic of obesity.
0: Yes, yes. And the younger people also are afflicted with the premature development of the cardiovascular risk factors. But as you mentioned, type two diabetes, et cetera. And it is really incumbent on us to have changes in public policies. As you know, there has been some changes in public policy, like removing juices in public schools and in what they serve to uh, the kids in school, removing it from vending machines. And I know in the Philippines, they promote breastfeeding because the milk, the formula has added sugar and in terms of the process formula. But what do you do when your only option is to give formula to the kids? I understand that we have to stress the importance of breastfeeding, Mm -hmm. but sometimes the mother just can't produce milk. Yeah, yeah.
1: And then what about in more developed countries? You have statistics on how other developed countries are dealing with obesity?
0: Uh, yes. Yeah. So, for example, as I mentioned, in the developing countries, it's played this higher, right? In developed countries, United States, as I mentioned, had the pack. And then there are countries, for example, that are developed like Japan and Korea, which obesity is at its lowest, like 2 to 4%. But it is predicted, though, like, for example, Korea, by 2030, obesity is projected to increase at a faster pace. And even these places like Japan and Vietnam, where their obesity rates are very low because of the advent of all this processed food, etc., that might even increase. So I think we have to pay attention to this and figure out what works and what doesn't work.
1: Right, right. And in the question of what works and what doesn't work, can we highlight a few causes that can lead people to develop obesity?
0: Yeah. So if you look at that ratio, if you increase your activity, you should be able to reduce your weight. Or if you decrease your caloric intake, you should be able to control your weight. But it's not as straightforward as that one because how much activity do you have to do and how much dieting and what kind of food you have to ingest, right? So it's not that any particular diet plan will work for everyone and everyone has their own metabolic activity, their own intrinsic system that's different from another one. So it's not as simple as that. But nevertheless, we think that if people are more active and like you see in culture, for example, like in Spain, where people walk a lot and stuff like that. And as you said, they drink wine, they eat the carbohydrates. But is it the type of carbohydrate that is really very healthy, like the Mediterranean diet? Mm -hmm. So I think it's both ways. They walk a lot. And if you look nowadays, How many hours people spend in front of their computer, their phone, TV, how many hours they are streaming from two to 10 hours. And then now with COVID, everyone is on Zoom and are prohibited to go out. Gyms are closed. So it's all of that factoring to the sedentary life. So I think people have to be cognizant of that. So that's only one.
1: Yeah, I definitely experienced a huge decrease in activity over the last year, especially when we had our real shutdown. Of course, things are slowly opening again. But I know that, you know, everyone around the world really experienced a huge lack of activity over the last year. And definitely, we will most likely see that result in increase in obesity, you know, when they collect that data when we get mm -hmm, there. mm -hmm.
0: I think they are reporting an average of 15 pound weight gain just this last year. And yeah. I think people have to be cognizant of this, right? Because you cannot just say, well, blame the pandemic. Why can't you jump ropes outside yeah. of your porch? Or why can't you dribble a ball or Take hit a walk a... around the block? Right. Or dribble a soccer ball around your backyard or something like that. Or get a stationary bike or do Zumba at home. Right, right. Absolutely. So I think, you know, something have to change. And one of them is that, the activity profile. And then the other one is eating. It used to be when I was growing up, all of us ate together. Even if we didn't have enough food, we all ate together. As I was raising my kids, I remember my kids will go in, go to the refrigerator, pick up something there, get the food from the refrigerator and go upstairs and eat in front of their computer. We don't sit down anymore and socialize with our kids. How was your day? And actually have the joy of eating. So I would like to resurrect that pattern, which I think is wonderful. It's a wonderful experience to be able to part bread with your kids, with your friends. So I think it has to be enjoyed and people have to really return the joy of eating again.
1: Yeah. And especially, you know, I feel like in America, we just live this really rushed work life. And I, I don't even know how many times countless number of times I found myself in a rush to get to work, I end up eating in my car on the go, which is terrible. And you feel that you didn't enjoy the meal, it wasn't as nourishing for your body. So that happens just all too often with all of us.
0: Yeah, I mean, we inhale our lunch from driving from one building to the other. I myself, as I mentioned in one previous podcast, that I inhale my lunch from point A to B because I saw a late patient and I have to be somewhere 15 minutes later. And so right. why do I, do I inhale my lunch? And I remember as a single parent, when I was raising my kids, my van smelled like a combination of a gymnasium and a restaurant. <laughs> it smells food and musty odor. <laughs> yeah. And because I pick up my kids at three o'clock and as they are changing to their soccer outfit, I would be driving frantically to Wendy's or McDonald's and get that chicken or French fries right. and a Coke or Sprite. So right. I myself I mean I remember those, right? So that is really sad, but that's reality. It's reality.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And everyone goes through that. So obviously we need to make changes, but you know, sometimes you can't be so hard on yourself because that is just reality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and then the third reality is the food, right? So what happens, you know, we have not only a lot of food available to us, even in the developing countries, but the problem is the type of food that's available that is cheaper. It is processed. It has a lot of high fructose corn syrup. Almost in every food that we eat, except for the fruits and vegetables that are out there without labels and anything with labels, it has to have this high fructose corn syrup. So it's highly processed. So the availability of food is not the only problem. It's the availability of the highly processed food. So it's right. not just high fat; it's high in sugar, it's high in fructose, etc. Right. And it's easy to pick up. It's cheap. It's easy to pick up. You order it and you pick it up. And with our busy lifestyle, that's basically what most of us are doing. How right. many of us are planning a meal, going to our kitchen, and enjoying cutting your vegetables? <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. And on that topic of availability, you know, there's a lot of rural areas that have food deserts where they actually don't have easy access to fresh fruits and vegetables, right? So that also just like exacerbates everything because sometimes all they can get is fast food meal or, you know, a canned meal from the liquor store, from the gas station. And in order to get that fresh fruits and vegetables, they have to travel a long distance. They have to travel on the bus sometimes. So that's also a whole other issue that goes along with this.
0: Yeah, and all those ramen noodles. Which are delicious, but... (laughs) Add hot water and you have a meal
1: you know, very uh, college meal there. <laughs> so then, could you highlight a few complications that can arise from obesity? I know there's oh, sure. so many.
0: Sure, sure. It's not a few. It's so many that yeah. it actually, if I looked at it, it almost involved every organ system that we have in our body. So let me just start with the skin. Mm -hmm. So it predisposes people to all skin and soft tissue infection, scarring, and the stretch marks. And there's even a lot of documentation of increasing like inflammatory illnesses like acne, etc. So cardiovascular-wise, obesity has been associated with increased risk of heart attack, heart failure, arrhythmias, like for example, atrial fibrillation. So that increasing association with that is actually very, very powerful. And it's so hard to tease out, is it just obesity or is it the confounding effect of other illnesses, like for example, smoking, high blood pressure, and diabetes. So is it all of the compilation of that or is it just obesity? And I think it's all of that. And then, so you go to the respiratory system, as you know, obesity is considered a restrictive lung disease, restrictive in a sense that it decreases the expansion of the lungs, uh, the lung compliance, it increases the chest wall impedance, so it actually, the recoil of the lungs is interrupted. There is also an abnormal ventilation, perfusion abnormality in obese people. And as you could see also, obese people have decreased ventilatory drive and increased bronchospasm when they develop asthma or bronchitis. So they have a lot more bronchospasm than a person with a normal body mass index. So that's cardiac, that's respiratory, and then you go to endocrine, so increased rate of insulin resistance, increased rate of diabetes, some endocrine dysfunction as hypothyroidism had been associated with obesity. It's not a cause of it, but there had been this big associations. So that's endocrine. And then you go down to the big one, cancers. So cancers and obesity have all this long-standing association, and it's not just one cancer. It is almost all the cancers, like from breast cancer, endometrial cancer, pancreatic cancer, gastric cancer, liver cancer, gallbladder cancer, prostate, meningioma, hepatocellular carcinoma, esophageal cancer. So it's almost all cancers, including colorectal cancers. And the mechanism seems to be like alteration in sex hormones and insulin and insulin-like growth factors and inflammatory pathways like adipokine, which are cytokines pathways involved in inflammation. So that is cancer. And then what else? Oh, dyslipidemia, for example. So obesity has been associated with increased LDL increased DLDL, that's the very high-density lipoprotein, and then increased triglycerides and decreased HDL. As you know, those groupings of that abnormal or disordered lipid metabolism are associated with increased cardiovascular risk. So what else? Oh, gastrointestinal, right? So GI. So yeah, what is in GI? Increased fatty liver disease, non alcoholic fatty liver disease has been reported in obesity and reflux. I've never seen a whole lot of reflux until the last 20 years when also there's increasing obesity. So that's what about
1: uh, like um, brain cognition or neural deficits. Are there anything like that?
0: Yeah. So obesity has been associated with decreased cognitive function, dementia. Is that just vascular dementia because of all of the added vascular risk as well? Yes, indeed.
1: Wow, the list is just really extensive. So, I mean, that's great why we have this conversation so that we can really help people see and become aware of all the complications that can arise from obesity. And, you know, just to give the listeners an answer on what they can do, can you just highlight a few things that they can do if they're experiencing this or advice that they can give to others?
0: I think it's very important that you develop a good relationship with your provider, your medical provider, and basically start probably outlining a template that will be very easy for that person to develop. So develop a plan. Focus on the plan, stick to the plan, get all your parameters with your physician to see where you're going. And then I guess look at your other risk factors. And then if you're fatigue and stuff like that, maybe get a sleep study, make sure that you don't have obstructive sleep apnea, which could right. happen with obesity. So if you improve sleep, you could also improve the way you approach your obesity And then I I think develop a plan that is tailored to your lifestyle, to what you could accomplish so you don't feel like you are a failure. And then probably organize a support system. Yes, Yes. Yeah, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your doctor's. And even if you don't have that support system, maybe some outside support system, like a social worker, a psychologist, who could help you spin this to the direction that will help you.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and also, you know, I feel like, Sometimes people feel that they're alone, but it's important to remind everyone that this is a journey that weight loss is a journey that a lot of people go through in multiple different times in their life. So if you're the person that needs that support system, needs someone to kind of guide you and hold your hand along the way and tailor make a plan for you, I highly recommend finding a personal trainer, finding a friend that already goes to the gym or has a little bit more knowledge on these topics that can be there to hold your hand along along the way, it's okay to need that help and to admit that you need a little bit of that extra push to get you started.
0: Yeah. But sometimes, as you know, there are barriers, right? Totally. People can be depressed over this and have poor self-esteem. And those are the very people who want to reach out, right? So that just imagine that there are people that it looks like it is so simple to do, but it, it is very difficult. I really want people to be really empathetic and compassionate about people going through this. So one is, of course, the diet and physical activity, right? And two is pay attention to your sleep pattern. And three is obtain a baseline parameters and then establish your goal. And then I think what people should know that there are other options. So that's only diet, physical activity. And then third will be sleep, as I mentioned, behavioral modification. And then look at the possibility of pharmacologic intervention. So there are medicines out there that you could explore with your primary care physician. And if that is for you, just don't look at all of those supplements that you get over the counter, but just be more clever and ask for help in terms of directing you to the right pharmacologic treatment or a combination thereof. And then if that's a failure, for example, in people who need to lose more than a 100 pounds, that is very difficult to accomplish with diet and yeah. exercise alone and behavioral modification. I have seen it, though. I have had patients who lost a 100 pounds just from diet and exercise. I know it's out there. But if that fails, surgical intervention, you know, the bariatric surgery, You could be evaluated, referred by your primary care provider. Is that for you? And that even would need planning as well and preparing you for that because you need to lose about 10% of your weight. And I like to remind people also that I would not sneeze on a five to 7% weight reduction because it has been shown again and again that even five to 8% weight reduction translates to a better outcome. In all right. of the cardiovascular outcome, endocrine outcome, and even overall mortality, right. so I would not sneeze on a five to ten percent weight reduction yeah.
1: and not to mention five to ten percent sounds small, but the change that you're going to have mentally and that extra boost you're going to have you know psychologically to overcome that initial barrier is going to be really great building your confidence, helping you want to continue maintaining that loss and continue moving on and taking those steps to better your health overall.
0: I agree. I agree. I think what it does to you in terms of your mood, in terms of your self-esteem, acceptance to yourself that you don't feel shameful, because I think to feel shameful of being overweight, that really strikes the very core of you because it's like you're blaming yourself for being obese as opposed to guilt where you're really not blaming yourself. You're blaming another entity, right? It's really not my fault. I could do something like that. It's very different. Guilt is very different from shame.
1: Yeah. And I'll just share a personal story if that's okay.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I think, you know, this podcast is all about humanism and medicine, right? Right.
1: Yeah, I definitely you know, growing up when I was in high school, I definitely was measured on the, you know, severely overweight to obese scale for a long time in my life. And, you know, I had so many people in my family that tried to intervene and, you know, motivate me to lose that weight or to make healthier diet choices. But like you said, in high school, you have access to, you know, soda and all these fast foods. And especially when you start having that freedom, and you're really not aware, because, you know, let's be honest, there's not a lot of education out there on this topic. So as a young adult growing up, when you just have access to all these things, you really don't think about how it's going to affect you long term. And in turn, that definitely developed a moment in my life where I did feel depressed, I didn't feel like, There was anything I can do or there was anything that anyone else can do to help me. And it took me a while again to find that motivation and that strength in myself to really take action. And at the end of the day, the only thing that helped me was me deciding that I wanted to do that for me and not for my family that, you know, tried to push me. Of course, like they have the best intentions, but you really have to make that choice for yourself and to want to improve only for you. And that's really what's going to help you overcome that first massive barrier to start moving in the right direction.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure you're not alone for uh, having that experience. My experience is the opposite. I come from a very, very poor family. We didn't have food to eat so much so that I was always thin and underweight. The psychological trauma of being thin and small and dark I was told that I was ugly and growing up feeling ugly and have a poor self-esteem can really work on your psychological uh, years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's the opposite, but it's the same. The psychological impact of not feeling good about yourself really makes a lot of difference in your quest to do something with your life. So I think I like people to pay attention to that and nurture themselves and be self-compassionate for example, you're hanging on to their life in terms of your diet and exercise program, and then whoops, you went up on your weight. I think be a lot more compassionate to yourself. I think self-compassion, I think is really, really very important. And I think as a population as a whole, I think we all need each other to support each other. And for me, a supposition I will pay more attention in terms of how hard it is for people, and I have to be more supportive in terms of their diet plan, et cetera. Yeah.
1: And I'll give one final tip to anyone that's, you know, struggling with that first step is. You know, when you get all this information, don't overwhelm yourself with all the different things you can do. Take it one step at a time, right? Maybe you start with going outside and taking a walk around the block. And then after you do that for a while, you can start doing, you know, more extensive activity. You can start slowly modifying your diet. So really take it one step at a time and understand that it is a process. It is a journey and just keep moving in that direction. But don't overwhelm yourself with completely changing your lifestyle out all at once because you want to enjoy your life along the way as well, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And obviously, you did not get overweight in one month, right? So, I mean, it takes a while to reverse it. And even those incredible diet plans and incredible medications or pharmacologic treatment for obesity, they're not miracle cure. Yeah. It really involves your own determination, your persistence to really be on target on this one. So um, I think we actually talked about this and I would like to invite you for our next podcast, which is the dietary approaches to obesity. And then after that, we will do physical activity. And then after that, we will just outline what are the medicines that are out there and what are the different bariatric surgery that are available but it will involve a conversation with your primary care provider. But we will just outline them and what data is out regarding the different diets and different exercise regimen, different pharmacology, and different bariatric surgeries. So stay tuned. And any take-home points, Nicole? Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, just keep educating yourself, I would say. And, you know, as we started, just as said in the beginning of this podcast, you know, have compassion for yourself and have compassion for those around you as well.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. And I, myself, I keep learning from all of this and I keep learning in trying to be a good human being. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. I'll see you soon.
0: Have a good day, Nicole. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, ACAS, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.